Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 30th, 2015, and this is episode 1600 of the Survival Podcast. I did take yesterday off. Um, I don't know if we'll have a feedback show this week or not. Today I actually have Nick Ferguson on the line. And Nick's coming on for a follow-up from an expert counsel question because he had so much more to cover and he wanted us to work him in. And as you know, a personal friend of mine, I was certainly willing to do that as long as he could get back past the uh, the Dorothy booking schedule because it's her schedule, not mine. We are coming up on a vacation, so I didn't mind booking a few extra people to uh, maybe try to get a show or two uh, in the can for you, so to speak, so that while I'm gone, you're not completely without shows for the entire vacation. Uh, our vacation is planned, I believe, and I could be wrong. I think we're leaving the uh, six. No, we are leaving the ninth, I think, of July, and won't be back till uh, on the air anyway. I won't be back till the twentieth. So it's like a week and a half um, that will be gone. So I've tried to book some extra guests to try to get maybe during that time, at least maybe that Thursday, Friday, have some shows in the can for you. So it's only one week without TSP. Remember, uh, just like yesterday when I took a day off. You can always go listen to past episodes. As of today, there's 1,600 of them. We've probably covered everything that you can imagine uh, in the preparedness lifestyle. If you're not really sure what you want to listen to, just we go to go to the site and look in the center column, and you'll see a thing that says "Listen to a random episode." Just keep clicking that until something hits your fancy. Now, remember, you can listen on your phones, etc. You don't have to uh, just download in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. The site is fairly mobile-friendly. All you have to do is just click on the play button, and it'll, it'll start playing the episode. Um, one more thing on that while I'm on the subject. Please always remember that you can get to the site very quickly on your mobile devices without typing out the survival pod, just tspc.co. tspc.co is a shortcut URL that will lead you straight to the survivalpodcast.com. Before I bring Nick on, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is, maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back 
to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason. Next up with that, let's uh, let's talk about the Bob Wells plant of the week. Every week, Bob Wells Nursery brings us a plant that you can grow in your own backyard to help your sustainability and self-sufficiency. We have uh, a really neat one today. The Arbuquinha olive um, is a cold-hardy variety of olive, one of the highest olive pr uh, production and oil yields that's available. A soil for this plant needs to be well-drained. The plant has an upright habitat. It's recommended that you cover the tree for the first winter if the temperature drops below freezing uh, in your area. Once the tree has been in the ground for a year and is well-rooted, it will begin to uh, withstand colder temperatures. The older the tree gets, the more cold-hardy it becomes. The oil of this olive is sweet, delicate, and fragrant with intense fruitiness but low levels of bitterness and spiciness. It's grown commercially for oil production in parts of California and Texas. If you live above Zone 7, you can grow it in a container and bring it inside during the winter months. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in edible landscape plants and trees, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruits, nut trees, as well as the hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. I want to say something about Zone 7 hardiness with this plant. Zone 7 is not the same everywhere there's a Zone 7. Just like Zone 8's not the same everywhere there's a Zone 8 from the heat side. Like, there's parts of uh, Washington State that are Zone 8 that are very, very different in actual climate than where I live, which is Zone 7 or 8, depending on what you ask. So will this plant survive your winters? It depends. I put a couple in the ground here. They did not make it, but I didn't give them the extra love treatment that I should have to try to get them to make it. I also felt that maybe it wasn't really the best location chosen. Um, and again, so the winter that we had where these things died on me was more like a zone six and a half winter 
And then this last winter, they might have celebrated through had I had them the ground for this winter instead of the previous winter. So it, as always, it depends. But these plants that are marginal, these cold-hardy things like cold-hardy olives and cold-hardy uh, avocado, if you're going to try them outside, it makes a lot of sense to try to get as much Uh, foundation under them as possible before you stop protecting them uh, and see if they can make it for themselves. So there's a little extra effort. If you're in zone 8, true zone 8 or higher, where it's not debatable like I am, these things should be just fine. Give them one season of good cover protection, and by the next year you should have a tree that will survive for you. And uh, a really interesting thing to have in many uh, of your areas where it's not expected to see an olive tree. Anyway, with that, Let me also remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to help support this show, you can join the MSB. It comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members for more information about signing up. I do take PayPal online as a main form of payment along with Bitcoin. I also take uh, cash check, money order, silver, Barter, if you make prearrangements, you can learn more by going to survivalpodcast.com. Again, click on Members. Those of you that want to pay by mail, you'll see at the bottom, pay by check, cash, money order, etc., silver. Click that. There's a form you fill out and send in uh, to do that. And I really do appreciate all of you who have been members of this show for many years. Thank you for your support. Uh, without you guys doing this, there's no way this show could have become what it's become. And it's kind of a pretty big deal today, isn't it? Episode 1600. 1,600 episodes of the Survival Podcast. There were there were some people in the beginning that said, this thing can never go the distance. Well, uh, we have just hit our stride. And uh, it's thanks to all of you that support the show. And if you're not yet a member, please consider becoming a member. I get you discounts on stuff. It makes your membership pay for itself. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1,600. Um, I'm going to read the... Uh, Alex's uh, thing called the 16th century that was. Whenever we turn a century, Alex kind of does a recap. The other two that are in today's thing are uh, sumo wrestlers make a big impression and the largest volcanic eruption in South American history. I'll read that one first. These are at tspwiki.com. It is important to note this volcanic eruption in Peru. The aftermath will kill 2 million people as worldwide temperatures drop and cop crops fail, but not today. Um, we'll talk about that one in the future. But the 16th century that was. We said our final goodbyes to the Middle Ages embraced the Renaissance, which gave us Michelangelo, Leonardo, Donatello, and Raphael, the artists, not the turtles. Balboa spots the Pacific Ocean, Cortez spots gold and silver, an Indian saint spots Our Lady of Guadalupe, books are burned, the first Jewish ghettos, France brings modern warfare tactics to the world, map makers call the New World America, the Aztecs fall, the Incas fall, silver from Peru causes the world economy to fall, potatoes and sunflowers, tulips, hot chocolate, and fire ants. Martin Luther kicks Christianity in a high gear. John Calvin adds his own signature. The German princes become the Protestants. The Anabaptists become the Amish and Mennonites. Queen Elizabeth watches the Spanish Armada come over the horizon and then sink. The Black Death, smallpox, and measles raids across the New World. No blankets involved. Syphilis rages across the Old World. The Stockholm bloodbath. The St. Bartholomew Day Massacre. Majolin, and Boylan. Sir Thomas More standing tall and losing his head. The Little Ice Age hits hard. Crop failures, werewolves, witches, and horse racing. Oh my. The Council of Trent defines Catholicism. The Lutheran Confession defines Lutheranism. And the prepared table defines Judaism, magnetism, cubic equations, imaginary numbers, and the spatula. The Gazette is the number one newspaper. It's Penny, uh, Penny Deadfall, 
uh, it's, I'm sorry, the Gazette is the number one newspaper. It's Penny uh, Dead, Dead Dreadful. The most destructive earthquake in recorded history hits China. Nostradamus, Galileo, Shakespeare, and Sulisan, the Magnificent. Europe is saved from the Ottoman invasion. The pencil is invented. The Gregorian calendar, the consolidation of corruption in China in a more efficient way. Pi Day, Kabuki Theater, the Japanese invasion of Korea, and the mother of all heights. The 80 years war grinds on and on and on. If it is better to be feared than loved, then the 16th century is better than ever. The whole world is changing again. That was hard when you get through. My take by Alex Shrugg. So much good and bad happened in the 16th century that I'm reminded of a child's poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very good indeed. But when she was bad, she was horrid. Um, yeah. This is what the 16th century, the, 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 the 15 to 1500 to 1600 time frame says to me. Man is capable of great things and man is capable of great evil. But I would challenge you that if you go back through this last hundred years and look at the 16th century, what you'll see is the greatest evils were committed not by individuals but under the authority of the state. It's just something to consider the next time you say there ought to be a law or the government should fix this. Just a thought. Um, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest right now. Again, this is my good friend, good personal friend, Nick Ferguson. And uh, he is one of the owners of uh, Perma Ethos. He's also the guy that brought you the plant propagation course. Of course, it's been taken by hundreds of people. And, you know, as our, our expert council member, he gets a lot of questions about plant propagation because it's something he's got a lot of background in and he's very good at. But Nick is, is a great all-around permaculturist with some really great insight on things. And uh, one of the things he's really well known for is small livestock, and that's something he's got a tremendous amount of experience with. And we had a question last week from a person that's like thinking about getting goats for meat, uh, and Nick gave his thoughts on that. But we realized there was a ton of information we could cover, and you know his answer for that question was, "Do you want to do all this for meat? There's other reasons to keep goats, um, and maybe goats are a good animal for you, maybe they're not. But man, goats can be tough." So our subject today is how do we bring goats onto our property and not regret it for the rest of our lives? How do we not hate ourselves for having goats? With that, I want to say, hey, Nick, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, man. I'm glad to be back. Hey, so I've got you on today to talk about goats, uh, kind of spurred on by a recent listener question. Before we get into that, though, I think most people know who you are because you're on the expert council. You've been working with us a long time. We have people coming on the air every day listening to us for the first time. So could you just give people, you know, the two to three minute background as to how you got into permaculture and how you ended up as a homesteader, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, um, growing up, I, uh, I was surrounded by this kind of thing from, you know, from birth pretty much. My grandfather was in sustainable ag consulting, did consulting all around the world in the U S. So, You know, I kind of grew up with this. Um, we spent a lot of time on the family farm in Ohio. And actually, when I was nine years old, I was playing around with, uh, um, with some clay from a bank in a, in a little creek runoff. 
And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I was making swales and ponds, and and I was putting little little minnows and crawdads in there. And my cousin asked me, you know, like all kids do, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to do this. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, he told me I had to be an engineer and that I'd never get to play outside. But uh, um, but I grew up and found a way to do that. And man, it's wonderful. <laughs> So, hey, we're going to talk about goats today, right? So yep. when I look at goats, I look at them and I think, God, they're a pain in the ass, just to be completely blunt. And the question you answered recently that precipitated this interview was really answered solely from the standpoint of, I want these for meat on the small piece of land. With that in mind, why the hell would anybody bother with such a pain in the ass animal in the first place? Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe you're a masochist. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, really, uh, they're great at clearing land, maintaining pasture, pushing forest edges back if you want to do that. They love to selectively browse on weedy species of trees and brush. They love thorny things like smilax, you know, greenbrier, catbrier, that stuff that grows really tall. Um, that's just hellacious. Um, pioneer species like sweet gum are one of my goat's favorite foods. So, you know, if you have a, a pasture that you have some grazers like sheep or a cattle in that aren't doing a good job at nipping off those pioneer species or those sapling trees that are coming up, um, goats, uh, that's, that's the first thing. That's the first thing they go to. Um, a lot of the silvopasture systems where you have cell grazing between rows of trees. A lot of people in permaculture now are putting in things like um, black locust. Well, black locust sends out runners and pops up little black locust trees all over the place. Well, that's going to be one of the first things those goats go to to, to eat. So, you know, having those in a, in a system or in your, your arsenal, so to speak, is a great maintenance um, tool for a homestead or a farm. Um, another good reason, you can keep more dairy animals on a piece of land than a cow. So, for instance, if you can keep one cow, you can probably keep half a dozen goats. But if your one cow gets sick and dies, you're in trouble. If one of your goats gets sick and dies, you have more. So they're smaller. You can still meet dairy needs on a smaller piece of land or one that isn't suitable for a cow. Um, they're, they'll handle rougher terrain and steeper terrain than cattle will. So for people in, you know, the Appalachian Mountains or uh, any mountain areas, mountainous area, hilly areas are, you know, where you might worry about a cow falling and, and breaking a limb, goats don't care. Um, and, you know, baby goats are so, so fun. So those are, those are my off the top of my head reasons um, I like them. I grew up with them. We started with uh, with goats when I was ten years old. So I've been keeping them for a couple decades now, and uh, and I always said I'd never get goats 
when I had my own property and what was the first animal I bought, a goat. <laughs> I mean, you kind of implied this, but maybe didn't directly say it, but they can make a living on land where, where cattle can't, not just with elevation mm -hmm. and all, but as far as like what's available for browse, you, you kind of talked about some of the things they can eat, but you have land that you'd look at and say, this land's just not ready for cattle yet. They, cattle are not going to do well here, or your stocking density is going to have to be significantly lower where a goat just goes, I'll eat all that, I don't care. Right, exactly. Oh, and, and another thing, you know, you can get goats for far cheaper than a cow. You try to buy one cow, a full-grown animal, you're going to spend 2,000 bucks. You know, you're going to spend a few hundred bucks on, on a goat. So, you know, for, for getting into it, you could get a breeding pair for, for less than a thousand bucks, even a good breeding pair. Um, you're not getting a breeding pair of cattle for a thousand bucks. Yeah, and I mean, I've even seen goats for less than that. I'm sure there's different breeds mm -hmm. that have to be taken into account and what have you. But basic old-fashioned meat goats or basic old-fashioned dairy goats can even be had for less than that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can look on Craigslist. Lots of people, they'll get some goats, and then they'll realize they're a pain in the ass. Yeah. And they'll want to get rid of them. Yeah. There's a dude right now in Waxahachie, I'm looking on Craigslist, selling boar goats. Take your pick, $100 a piece. He has 12. What do you want yep. to bet what you just said <laughs> is what happened? Yep. It, that's, it's either that or he got to breeding too much, and now he's in trouble, and he's got overpopulation, and he's got to either kill them all and butcher them, and he doesn't want to, or the market took a hit, or, yeah, like you said, he's someone that got into him and didn't realize what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, when we look at land assessment, you know, the person that asked a question last mm -hmm. week was asking, like, they had about two and a half acres. I've got three. I look at my three acres, and I think to myself, if I wanted to do this here, if I didn't have a couple thousand dollars worth of trees per hundred square feet planted, and if it was all really great pasture, I could put a few goats on here, no problem. But when I think about trying to control them here on three acres, and I look at my property, what it produces, I go, I, I think I'd want to kill myself if I did this. So, you know, with that in mind, what kind of a land holding do you think makes sense for keeping goats? And does it change based on, you know, where you are and what your overall goals are? Right. Well, um, you know, we need to think about stocking densities and what the minimum number is. A lot of people don't think about that. I can just buy one goat. Well, you get one goat, you're going to have a very unhappy goat. It's probably going to get sick and depressed. They're herd animals. They want company, man. So keeping two together, that's doable, but you really should have at least three. Um, so, you know, now we get into the size of the animal. If you've got full-blood Nubians, you know, they can be four foot tall, five foot tall at the head, you know. So they can be pretty big. But Nigerian dwarf dairy goats, well, they can be two foot tall. Um, so, you know, you need to look at at the amount of land you have, amount, amount of land that you have to house them on, and, and their browse. So if you're fine with bringing in extra food, well, you can, you can put more goats on a smaller piece of land and just be really careful about how you graze. But, um, you know, if, if you've got acres and acres, well, you can, you can parcel that out and, and pretty much not have to spend any money on any food for them except for during the winter. So it's it's really hard, like all things permaculture, it, it depends. But, um, you know, think about uh, think about how much they eat 
and uh, and I'd encourage people to if you're thinking about getting goats, find someone in your area that has them, and and just go talk to them, pick their brain, find out in your area what what you know an acre will sustain with goats because it's going to be different all over the U.S. Yeah, I think it, it definitely is going to be different all over the U.S. and maybe even in the same region if you. If you just travel 20 miles south of me, there's a lot deeper soils. The land's a lot richer. There's sandy loam down there. You've been here. You know what it's like. Those are two different worlds, and we're only talking 20 miles. So I could imagine, you know, 20 states away, things are going to be very, very different. Right, exactly. Um, well, you know, we're talking about how much land. I think it would be a, a, a good idea to talk about some housing and, and feed and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean... So, like, another thing I look at is, like, well, where would you house them? And, and the other thing is, how would you control them? So, mm-hmm. I think if you're trying to control goats on a big, giant, open, pastured piece of land, it's one thing if it's mostly pasture. <clears throat> if you have a lot of young trees and stuff like that, they're going to eat that. So, how do we right. vary, like, the, the housing, moving them around, taking care of them, and control? Okay. So, um, the first thing we need to talk about is fence. So... I. This all depends on your budget. If you can afford it, horse fences is, is best. The woven wire, two inch by four inch, um, openings. That's uh, that's generally called horse fence. Um, I would suggest going with the the heavier gauge stuff. I think Red Brand will make the some of the heaviest gauge stuff. And if you if you can afford it, that's best. Um. And that should keep your goats in, no problem. You put the the posts on the far side away from animals, so they have to if they push on the fence, they push the fence into the posts. That's important because they will rub and scratch. Um, and if you go with a solid fence like a cattle fence or um, hog fence or or the horse fence, or something like that. They even make goat fence that's four inch squares, and I'd say that's second best. Again, the woven wire, not welded. Never, ever, ever, ever use welded wire with goats. They will just push right through it. It's it's insane. They'll push right through it and go wherever the heck they want. Um, electric fence is going to be the key to keeping them maintained, keeping them where you want them and out of where you don't want them. And the the key to that is consistency. You need to have that thing on all the time, and they need to never, ever think that they can get through it. So the way I, I start them out is I start my kids out in a trainer pin, and it's about 16 foot square. And I put electric fence right on the inside of it with step-in posts, and I have as many strands as will fit on the little step-in posts. I think it's five or six. And and I put that electric fence right up against the the hog panels. I use hog panels so I can step over them. And uh, and I put that fence right up against it, so they have a, a visual barrier. They're gonna see that there's something there, and then when they go up to inspect it, they're gonna get zapped. And I will put a 20 mile charger <laughs> on that one pen. 64 and, feet of, of circumference on a 20 mile charger <laughs> yes yes it's enough to make your body convulse i tested it myself i never put my animals through anything that i'm not willing to go through myself um when it comes to training or 
or electric fence or anything. So I've tested it myself, and it will just make your whole chest convulse. Um, and it works. They they learn very quickly. Fences are not to be messed with. And then what you do is you you take those those hog panels apart and you start pushing them out a little bit. You start expanding that space. So their their pen stays the same size, but the hog panels move further and further away from the electric. And eventually there's no hog panels, and they just know that that electric fence is now the thing preventing them from going anywhere else. And then you can start taking away strands of wire. And if you train them well, I used to have my goats trained very well when I when I lived here and, and was here all the time. Now I'm I'm gone all the time with consulting and installs. But uh, um, when I was here every day, um, my goats were trained so well to electric fence that I could take two strands of mason's twine and I could walk around a patch of brush with two strands of mason's twine and let them in that patch of brush and they would not challenge the, in air quotes, imaginary electric fence that yeah. was the mason's twine. Well, it makes sense. I mean, once you've been hit by an electric fence, you don't constantly yeah. check it with your hand. Yeah, you, you never want to touch it again. Right? We have a tool for that, to, to check a fence. We don't, like, let me see if it still hurts, because mm-hmm. you know damn well it still hurts. And the goat's a little bit simpler of a creature, and, you know, it, once they understand that, but I guess the, 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 the caveat is if they do happen to brush up against it and it doesn't get them because it's not yep. on, then they're mm-hmm. like, oh, <laughs> Right. And, you know, they'll, they'll just be browsing, browsing, not looking where they're going, and then they'll bump into it. And if they get zapped, you know, that reinforces that. But, you know, like you said, if they're browsing and not paying attention, they might stick their head through that fence and then realize, oh, I don't have to worry about the fence because it doesn't bite me anymore. Um, so always keep your fence on. Check it often because if it shorts out and you don't realize it, It'll take one one or two times to train those goats that they don't have to pay attention to your fences, and then you have to retrain. You've got to put them back in that small pen. You've got to retrain them to the electric. It'll take about 10 zaps. Hmm. Um, for every time they get out of that fence, it'll take them about 10 good zaps before they are retrained. Um, so after after – they're they're trained and everything's going well. I use three strands of electric fence and I like the poly wire because it's easy to work with. It's easy to move. I can tighten it. Um, I don't have to worry about sag over longer stretches, so I can get it a lot tighter than let's say aluminum or steel wire, and it's got a little bit higher visibility. So um, I like it for those reasons, and it's easy to spool up. Um, and flexibility is really nice when you have goats because if you've got a couple spools, you can just turn your fence off, go toss on a couple more strands, and fence off a little area to either keep them away from an area that you need to work in or an area that just got planted. But once once you have them trained, three strands works great, and I put one strand about six inches up off the ground or so. And then another one about 18 inches off the ground, and then the third strand is about three feet off the ground. And that cha- that changes depending on the size of the animals. Sure. So if you have all big animals, then you want one about just the the standard nose height. You know, when the animal's just standing there, just standing normally, not browsing, not sticking their head down, but that nose height 
eye height is a good spot, and then right at shoulder height, and then, again, about six inches off the ground. So whatever that size is for your animals, that's that's what you're shooting for. Um, so that's that's pretty much the fence stuff. Again, you know, this... You know, goats are notorious for ignoring fences, and I, ha- I had a billy goat that – he was a Nigerian dwarf billy goat, and Nigerian dwarf goats are bulletproof. Um, and when I say bulletproof, I mean bullet-resistant, but I tried to put a <laughs> – I tried to put a buck goat down with a 12-gauge with number four buck from about eight feet away. And it knocked him on the ground. He got back up and kept eating. Oh, my God. Yeah. Number four buck, eight feet away from a 12-gauge. I, I was blown away. Uh, he wasn't. And he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't. Wow. So, so when I say these goats are tough, they're tough. So Did I had you tell to... me one time you had one that was, like, standing there just being electrocuted yeah. and, like, yeah. whatever? Yeah. Yeah, I was about to tell you that story. Uh, you know, so this Billy Goat, I, um, he, uh, he actually got his eye put out at one point. Um, and I don't know how it happened, but I didn't have $1,200 to send him to the vet to get the eye all taken care of. So, um, what was hanging out got cut off. He got a shot of penicillin and rocked on. And this guy was, had learned that, um, electric fence really, doesn't bother him, and so he would stand in the electric fence with it on top of his back and strapped across his belly, and his whole body was convulsing with each pulse of the the 20-mile electric fence charger. He's about 20 feet away from the ground rods and the charger, and he's just sitting there eating, convulsing with the electric. And that's just because he, you know, when I was gone, fence got knocked down, and... He learned that he could go through it, and ever since then, he just never cared about the fence. So, yeah, keep them trained. Um, so, shelter, um, housing for them. Uh, most most goats don't need much. Most parts of the U.S., they're not going to need a four-sided shelter. A three-sided shelter will be fine. If you live up north, you probably want a four-sided shelter um, uh, just to keep them warmer during the winter. But one of the key things is you want them to have dry bedding and a dry area around their housing. So don't put their housing somewhere where it's going to stay wet. Um, They're kind of susceptible to foot rot. So, you know, keep them somewhere that's well-drained, higher up on your landscape, um, where it'll be nice and dry for them. But, uh, yeah, three-sided lean-tos are great. I've got... I've got a small barn that's got two stalls in it. Um, one thing you learn if you start getting into goats is uh, the more small pens and stalls you have, the better. You will never have enough. Um, you might have goats that you need to separate um, when you're when you're milking them. You know, keeping the babies separated from the the does is is sometimes a really beneficial thing or separating bucks from does or does from does giving them some privacy so they can kid in peace um sometimes the bucks will um become very interested in a doe that is just kidded 
and you don't want them trying to mount a doe that had just kitted. So being able to separate them is, is really nice. Um, but yeah, so that kind of basic structure, you can get really fancy. Um, I always like to give them some place where they can get out of rain. They do not like rain, and they're not going to do well if they get wet often. But, uh, but their feed, so... You know, you're thinking about setting up your paddocks. You want to make sure they have some brush. That's going to be their their biggest go-to. Um, if if you don't have have good brush and you're going to be supplementing, make sure they always have hay. And most people in the U.S. I understand this is not optimal, and most people want to go all organic. But um, if all you can do is give them some 12% sweet feed and alfalfa pellets. Um, they will do just fine on that and hay and water year-round. Um, go ahead. I was going to say, well, I mean, you're, you mentioned the shelter, and it seems like one of the big concerns is going to be, for from an infrastructure standpoint, uh, keeping their feed dry. I mean, yeah. rotted hay is no good. So even though they don't need much of a shelter, you need to make sure you have a place for their feed. Right. And and that's a, that's a good point, Jack, is uh, – um, a lot of people around where I live will feed cows moldy hay. You cannot feed goats moldy hay, and especially don't feed dairy goats moldy hay. That's not good for them. Um, they can get poisoning from it and and die. So make sure you give them nice dry hay. You keep their feed um, dry and bug-free. And having a place out of the weather where you, you can put mineral feeders that they can't stand in. So you need to prevent them from being able to stand on the mineral feeders. If you just screw them to the wall, they're going to hop up in those mineral feeders and stand there, and they'll poop in them. <laughs> and if they do that, they're not going to eat the minerals. If uh, Lots of people think that goats will eat just anything. They won't. If it falls on the, grain, uh, on the ground, unless they're really hungry, they're not going to eat it. Um, if, they, if they defecate in the mineral feeders... They're not going to eat the minerals. Um, so you need to be able to give them a place where they can stick their heads in but not get their butts up to it because I don't know how, but they find a way to back their butts right up to those mineral feeders and drop nanny berries in there. <laughs> it's it's so frustrating sometimes. Um, but yeah, they need someplace dry to keep their mineral feeders. And minerals are are very important with uh, all animals, in my opinion. Um, now, there's a mineral program called IDM. Um, you can just Google it. I don't have the time to cover it here, but IDM mineral program is really good. Um, the second best would be to have a good free choice loose mineral, some Redmond salt or the Redmond salt uh, chunks. You can find them for horses in most feed stores. Um, kelp meal, some activated charcoal, dolomite limestone, regular high calcium limestone, and diatomaceous earth. You have each one of those in a separate uh, container, and that way they can just pick and choose what they want whenever they want it and whenever they need it. Um, and then last in your in your mineral thing would be to get a couple different mineral blends and put them in feeders. Um, so you can get mineral blends that are made for cattle for the spring, some for the summer, some for the fall, some for the winter. But if you put those out in, in different containers, uh, they have different proportions of, of the, the minerals in there. 
and and they can just pick and choose which which they need at, at whatever season and and whatever their particular needs are right at the time. What are your feelings from a a, a product standpoint as to an, an output as to what they're best suited for? Do you think they make a good meat animal, or are they better as a dairy animal that just happens to produce meat? Um, okay, well, I keep them as dairy animals, and very seldom do I butcher any of the of the goats because honestly, I can sell them for more than the meat would be worth. Um, if I were to harvest it for meat, um, you know, I'm gonna get twenty, thirty pounds of meat um on on a kid but i can sell that kid for 150 to 500 dollars hmm. so um for me it's it's you know providing great goats to homesteaders um and and my dairy yield now if you're somewhere where you've got a, a bunch of land and you like the the flavor of goat meat then i would get meat goats and maybe keep a couple dairy goats because you could pick up one or two uh, dairy does, and they can be bred to the meat goats and drop um, some hybrid kids that are going to be beefier, um, and you still have that meat yield, and you still have your dairy yield. So I, th- I think they're great for both. It depends on your situation. If you like them and you have the space and, and goats fit for your situation, then fantastic. Um, they're a lean meat. Uh, I think they taste great, um, but uh, for for us, it's it's mainly uh, the dairy yield. Can you talk about that too? Like, what is the yield? And then, like you told me that you don't necessarily have to get down there and manually milk a goat. They actually make little milkers. Uh, yes, that which is yeah. That was the only thing that ever even gave me the remote potential to even think about it when I <laughs> learned that that thing existed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Um, Let's say you don't have time to milk today. Well, she just had two kids. They're going to milk her. Um, if you have a busy lifestyle, having dairy goats um, can fit in that really easy. Now, what you're going to sacrifice in the in the long term, you know, over the year's time, over the milk season, you're going to sacrifice some longevity of your milk season by not being regular with your uh, milking schedule. But... If if it comes down to having some some goat milk um, or not, then I would much rather have half the yield of goat milk and only have to milk half the time, and and that's what I would uh, often do is um, I would separate the kids at night. So I went out to take care of the animals at night. I'd put the kids in a separate pen. The does would stay in a in a pen separate from them, and then first thing in the morning I'd milk the goats and. Um, and then let the the baby goats in with the mamas and just let them run out in their in their paddock and the baby goats will they'll keep them milked out and if you have to go somewhere for a few days well don't worry about it just keep them all together um like i said the the drawback though is as those kids get older they start eating more solids and they start uh they stop milking as much and the the doe's natural response to that de- decrease in in milk need is to produce less. So you'll see a drop off um, if you miss milkings or um, if you're just letting them take care of the kids and and not milking them at all. 
Um, they'll they'll wean them at four months or so. Um, some some does will let them nurse for a whole year. Some does will try and kick them off after just a few months. It all depends on on the goat. But yeah, it's it's really nice if you've got uh, um, a busy schedule or if you have a vacation coming up, just uh, leave the goats all together. You've got a big paddock with lots of food in there, browse for them, and you've got an automatic waterer. You don't even have to worry about them. Hmm. Just leave them. So what kind of a yield do you expect from a doe, and how long is the milk season usually last with proper management? Okay, um, milking them, it'll normally be about eight months out of the year. So they'll drop kids in the spring generally, and some some goat breeds have two breeding seasons, one in the summer and one in the fall. Um, but generally they they come into heat in the fall and go through early winter, and um and they'll uh when they start producing um I generally give them the first week with their kids because we don't want the colostrum um and I'll allow them stay with the kids for the first week and then I start separating them at night and the morning milking I'll get um off of a good um Nigeria, uh, Nigerian dwarf dairy goat, you'll probably get a quart to a pint. Um, but from uh, a Nubian, which is what I mostly have, um, you can get, you know, one single milking, you can get two quarts to a gallon and a half. So general is about three quarts for each one of my, my does for their morning milking. And then if, uh, if the, uh, if the babies are with them and you don't have them weaned or on milk replacer, which I do not like milk replacer, but I try to get them weaned as quick as possible so that I'm getting all the milk. Um, and so the evening I'll, I'll generally get about a quart and a half to two quarts per, per dough. So, I mean, one goat, you're getting a gallon a day easy. Wow. That's more yeah. than I expected. Yep. So if you get three or four goats, I mean, it's more milk than most families could ever use. You're starting to look at, you know, selling some, making cheese, doing something with it. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, if you're, you've got a little homestead and you're making cheese, well, you've got whey as a byproduct. That's great chicken feed. That's great pig feed. And that's great uh, soil amendment for your garden. Hmm. So it, it seems to me that goats really don't seem like the greatest meat animal, like uh, even from a standpoint of I'm just going to raise a few this year to eat. Um, if I look at chickens, I can buy chicks for almost nothing, and I can put them on an 8- to 12-week cycle, and I got chickens. I can do that with pigs. I can do that a lot longer cycle, but that even makes sense financially to do with cattle. Mm-hmm. It seems like goats are much more of a management tool in the homestead that have outputs that need to be managed based on your goals, your homestead, your size, your time commitment, all that other stuff. Right, right. Um, the, here's the big thing with the goats is you have a meat yield once a year. Mm-hmm. When those kids are um, between three and five months old, that's when you want to butcher them. So, I mean, that's not a lot of a meat yield when you when you're talking about pounds. Yeah. Um, now, one. And of what the, are they going to lay on the lay on the the hoof at that point? They can't be sixty pounds. No, no, 
you're you're gonna get you're gonna get twenty to thirty pounds of meat off of a off of a kid at that. I'm age. saying what's the what's the live weight on that animal? Probably fifty pounds, maybe. Yeah, forty to sixty. Okay, yeah. If if they're a meat goat, then they should be sixty to eighty pounds at at that age. And you know, again, you can you can take them to where they're a yearling and then butcher them then. Um, with with male goats, you want to castrate them. Well, I use an elastrator. It's just an elastic rubber band thing on a tool, and you just pop it up around the sack and open the handles. The ring pops on there. He hops around, kicks a little bit for 10 seconds, and then hollers for 30 seconds, and that's that's it. <laughs> Goes on about his life at that point, yep. I guess. Yep, cuts off circulation. He can't feel anything. Um, they dry up and fall off, and... And now he's castrated. Hmm. So, um, and you definitely want to do that to any male buck that you don't want to get genetics out of because they do stink. Um, when it's breeding season, you do. Oh, here's a, here's a very good little tip. Um, do not put your goats, if you have male goats, downwind of your house or anywhere that you want to enjoy yourself, especially during the fall. Because when when it's breeding season, those male goats are disgusting, man. They they will pee on themselves. They stand there and they pee on their front legs and their face. They urinate all over their face. Uh, a, a male goat, yes, a male goat that has white on his face by the end of fall has a yellow face. Wonderful. I mean, I gotta tell you, one of the things that turned me off was being at your place in the fall when they were running. Yep, and they just reeked, and I'm like, I don't want that. <laughs> yep, yeah, you definitely don't want to touch them. Um, one of the best things to do to get buck scent off, and it doesn't ever get it all the way off. You've got to wait uh, uh, for a day for it to kind of dissipate. Is to use coffee grounds. So you get a little bit of Dawn dish soap and put a teaspoon of ground coffee, you know, fresh ground coffee, not not the used grounds, in your hand and just rub. Rub the crap out of them, um, and that'll that'll help cut the smell. Um, your wife will will not like you crawling into bed if you smell like a buck. Yeah, I don't blame her. Um, when you are gonna go ahead and slaughter, is there certain things you need to do to make sure you get good quality of meat? Okay, um, you definitely want to kill quickly in a no stress environment and get them bled out quick. Um, and then I age the meat for a couple of days and then I spat with a little salt to cut down on bacteria growth. Um, but what I do is if I'm going to, uh, kill a goat for meat, I'll, I'll separate them out from the other goats and I'll put a, a grain bucket down and I'll let them start eating and I'll get a 22 rifle and I'll kind of circle around behind them. I'll have to do that a couple times because they'll stop and they'll kind of twist so that they can keep their eye on you. Yeah. Um, but once they kind of get settled down and he's eating, then I put the I line it, the shot up between his ears and towards his nose, and that'll normally put him down instantly. They drop. There's no fuss about it. They're instantly out. And then I've already got um, hooks ready to string him up right there. So. He gets shot. He's on the ground. I'm I'm there right away with a knife. Make two slits on either side, and he gets pulled up and and drained. Um, 
and you know you you taught me the the trick with the five gallon bucket and sawdust in there yeah um that's what i do set the bucket under there it goes to the compost pile um get them cleaned out real quick rinsed out and uh and i i like to use the uh the golf ball um and uh come along method for skinning you just pop that golf ball in the um in between the shoulders in the hide mm-hmm. tie off to it put the come along to it and just pull and it pulls <laughs> the the skin right off mm. yep you'll look it up on youtube you can see lots of people put up uh skinning a deer with a golf ball it's it's pretty slick um and and then after that i quarter it out i take the back strap and the tenderloin and i just i basically take the leg quarters back strap and tenderloin and i toss it in an ice bath for a couple of days and then we either cook it slow or part it out and put it in the freezer Okay, good enough. <clears throat> yep. And and the milk. So if you're keeping goats for for milk, then to make sure it's safe and it tastes good, you want to use sanitary practices. You wash the udder with a washcloth, rinse it with the wet cloth, dry it off. Um, then you can use a, ta- a teat dip. I don't, um, but a lot of people like to. It's a bacterial dip that you put in a little cup and dip the teat in. And then you shoot the first couple streams of milk into... Your dog's mouth or a dog bowl or whatever, feed it to an animal, but don't use it because bacteria can build up in the milk orifice. Um, you strain the milk as soon as you can and chill it as fast as possible. Some people even go so far as to put their milk jars in an ice bath, but we just put the, the quart jars or two quart, you know, half gallon mason jars in the freezer for about 45 minutes to an hour to chill it down quick. Um, and, that that'll that'll get you pretty good tasting milk. Um, the strainer, um, we've got a, a stainless steel strainer with uh, disc filters that we got from Hoger Goat Supply, and that's one of the best investments you can make is a decent strainer and those filters because it's quick, easy, and you can sanitize it. Um, about sanitizing, you want to use glass to to milk into or stainless steel. I just use wide mouth glass jars, quart jars, mm. and and I milk straight into the quart jar. And when I get home, I pour it. I I set the the filter its size so that it it fits on a wide mouth jar. And you set the the strainer filter on top of your half gallon quart, uh, your half gallon mason jars, and you just pour the milk through. It goes through really quick, and then you stick it in the in the fridge. But Never use plastic to milk into, to handle your milk, to store the milk in. It'll get micro scratches in it, and bacteria will build up, and you'll end up getting someone sick with E. coli. Mm. So uh, stainless steel and glass Glass. for everything. Sanitize it. um, You know, be safe about it. But uh, in, in 20 years of dealing with goats, no one has ever gotten sick off of the raw milk. Despite what the government will say, it will not kill you. Um, <laughs> Somehow people live for 10,000 years using milks. Uh, using goat's milk. So wow. maddening. Um, oh, here's a, a, a cool little, little tidbit of information. Goat's milk 
is a lot easier to digest than cow's milk. And um, with our first son, um, my wife's milk supply started drying up, and we had to decide to either use formula, which we really did not want to do that, or use goat milk. And you can get goat milk baby formula recipes so that you make sure the baby's got everything they need. But that's what our first son was raised on was goat milk. Yeah. If you you were, you know, looking at buying one of these goat milker machines and these things are like 500 bucks around from what I've, I've seen, how many goats would you have to milk before you thought it was worth doing? Um, if I had to milk more than six goats, um, at a setting, I would, I would say it's, it's well worth the money. Um, I'm, I'm really quick with, with my goats. Of course, I've been breeding them for years for, um, to get the milk out quick. Um, and for extreme hardiness, but, um, with my goats, I can get a gallon of milk in, in jars in probably five or 10 minutes. Mm. So it's, it's pretty quick. Um, now, but even though it's called life, I mean, that's part of it. Right. So, you know, I've got, I've got pretty strong, uh, muscles for when it comes to milking. Um, and, and I can milk. Two-handed, fast, into a small-mouth mason jar. <laughs> Most people don't have that kind of control and aim. So, you know, when you're really experienced at it, it really speeds things up. But um, if I was um, doing the Nigerian dwarf dairy goats, yeah, I would definitely get one of those milkers. Yeah, because they have tiny teeth. It's like trying to milk a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Meet the Fockers style there. You know, uh-huh. didn't you? Um, so, <laughs> okay, I had a question for you, and that threw me off. Um, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, p- parasites. So you were talking about some of the things that can happen, like if you don't take care of the milk right to us, but I'm sure there's things that can make your goats sick that you need to make sure. You already mentioned, like, not letting them crap on their minerals and stuff like that, or their hay get nasty, but I was just reading this article in a magazine recently getting ready for this interview about a place in Wisconsin doing a goat cheesery. Mm-hmm. And one of the little sideline notes in there was that this lady that's running it, um, you know, started having milk yield decreases and things like that and learned that it was some kind of parasite. And then there was some kind of herbal treatment she started giving them. And, you know, that, that they do it every year right when they kid now and they don't have that problem, but it's always like a constant learning process. So there are are there certain things you need to watch out internal parasite wise, et cetera, like that, that can either make them sick or just affect them adversely? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's, that's actually the, the number one health concern with, with goats is internal parasites. And, and it can really, it can really knock them out of commission quick and, and can definitely kill them. Um, one of the things that is good to look for is, is check your goat's eyelids, their lower eyelid. Every once in a while, mm-hmm. um, just scratch on them for a while, and and then reach up there and just kind of pull their cheek down so that their eyelid kind of opens up, just like you would if you're putting eye drops in, and and look at the color of of the eyelid. The redder, the better. So if they've got nice red to pink um, coloration in their eyelids, that means they're generally pretty healthy. If it's starting to get pale or if it's white. If it's white, they're very anemic and they're about to die. 
Um, and that's from hookworms. Mm. Or no, no, not hookworms, wireworms, I believe. Okay. Yeah, wireworm. Um, and they'll just literally suck the animal dry of blood. Um, so, uh, diatomaceous earth, wormwood, there's, there's lots of different herbal things that you can use. Um, there's herbal preparations that you can buy online. Um, black, uh, walnut hull, uh, really helps with that. If you put in your, your pasture mix where, where they, uh, where they're browsing, um, plants like, uh, that, that have high tannin levels. There's, there's quite a few. I can't think of them right off the top of my head. I'm having a brain fart, but high tannin levels, um, in their, their feed will actually help suppress, um, intestinal parasites. I don't worm my animals anymore. Mm. I, I used to a long time ago. Um, I have bred and bred and bred these animals. Um, this kind of gets into my philosophy with, with all my animals. Um, if they have health problems that cannot be overcome with good food, water, and shelter, I don't have room for them on my, on my homestead. They're, they're too expensive and they get cold. So <clears throat> a long time ago, my goats got cold for, um, for parasite problems. If they got wormy, they got gone. Um, and a, a big thing is keeping your pastures rotated. Don't keep them in one spot for a long time because your worm populations really build up. Um, a lot of people, they'll have kind of a, a yard that they'll open up to, to other paddocks, which is a really convenient way to, to manage your goats. So you have kind of a sacrificial yard that's just pretty much bare dirt, um, and you want to keep that yard small enough that you can keep it mulched really heavily with old hay, um, leaves, branch trimmings, something like that. Um, and if you keep chickens in with them, um, chickens will actually compost that all down. And you can toss all of your table scraps in there. So you've got chickens and goats in the same mulch yard. The goats are pooping and peeing in the mulch. You're capturing it. You're capturing the chicken manure, and you're recycling all your table scraps through the chickens, and then you you pile that all up into compost piles and let the chickens do half your work by scratching it down, and then when it's done composting, you take it out. So you're constantly taking that that parasite load and removing it from that system and replacing that ground area with with new material. So that really helps cut down on, on parasites. Um, if you don't have the means or ability to do all that, then check with the local vet on on what kind of wormers you should give them. Um, unless you can get some some good stock that's very worm resistant. Um, definitely, it's better to have medicated alive animals than have all of your animals die. Uh, yeah, I I really get upset with people that are like I don't want to use any medications whatsoever, and it's like, yep. what do you do when you get sick? Right. And, and I know there's some stuff with organic, which is one of my big problems with it. Where once the animal's been given antibiotics, it can't be organic again. I think that's stupid. 
And, and I, I have yet to meet the small-scale producer that really benefits from organic certification. Right. I, I think if you're talking to your customers, they want to know how your animals are taken care of, and that's it. I haven't had a single person not buy our product because our eggs are not organic. What they want to do is they want to come and look, see how the animal's taken care of. And I, I would imagine for most consumers of any other product, it's going to be the same way. Right. Um, I, I run into it all the time. People want to get hyper-crunchy organic um, I, I don't want any, uh, anything that could be GMO on my property ever. Uh, that feed probably has GMO, so I can't ever feed it to my animals. And I say, look. You Before do- you go on, don't you love it when they have a bag of Cheetos in their windowsill? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they're drinking water out of a plastic bottle. Yeah. Or they get water out of, out of the, the refrigerator door. Um, and they're talking about um, not wanting to feed animals something that wasn't organic. Um, the the food quality and the toxin levels of my goat milk is far, far lower than anything you could buy in a store, even organic, I believe. Um, Definitely. And And I still feed them. Uh, you know, just for convenience sake, I feed them alfalfa pellets and a little bit of sweet feed when they're in the milking stall. You know what? That alfalfa is probably GMO alfalfa. They get a, like a handful. Yeah. And everything else is is browsed from the forest. Yeah. So 99.9% of their diet is coming from my land. And, uh, you know, I've got... I've got great quality animals, great quality dairy and meat products. Don't don't cut your nose off to spite your face. Um, don't and, let the per- the, don't let don't let perfect be the enemy of the good is what I always like to say with that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, with with sanitation, you know, keep their mulch yard material changed out often, and keep their feet dry. Don't house them in a wet area. Have you? Is there anything you got to make sure they don't eat, like something that'll make them really sick or kill them, other than just being contaminated? Like any kind of plant, you got to keep them away from, or anything like that. Or yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, if if you're getting goats, you're probably going to start looking into what's poisonous, and there's whole lists of poisonous plants. Um, goats are browsers, so if you have a two acre paddock that you put them into, and it is ninety percent cherry. You're going to have problems. Uh, cherry leaves are toxic to goats. Anything in the prunus genus is toxic to goats. So don't don't feed them your your cherry limb prunings or your plum or or anything like that. Um, white oak leaves that are wilted, cherry leaves that are wilted will will really hurt them pretty quick. Azaleas will are toxic, but this is what I say: if you've got mixed hardwood forest that you put them into, don't worry about it. Um, if you are going to go chop down a cherry tree, don't let them near it. Clean it up, get it out of there um, so they can't eat those leaves. But other than that, just don't worry about it. Um, try, keep them out of your flower beds if you've got azaleas. Um, try and keep them away from that stuff, but don't get crazy about it. Uh, don't go through your woods and and thin out every single wild cherry tree just because they might eat a little nibble. 
that because that's all they'll do. They'll eat a little nibble and they'll go on. Very cool. So um, as we get ready to, to round things out here, uh, can you talk a little bit more about the need to have a, the right number of these animals? One goat is lonely. Two goats, I think they tend to get into more trouble. Yeah, well, you know, if you can have uh, a nice little herd of about six goats, um, they'll they'll have a whole lot more of that herd instinct, and they'll want to stick together, and they're a whole lot easier to move. Um, uh, one of the the funny things is is when when it's time for the goats to go in for the evening, um, I start calling the goats, and they'll call back to me. And once they see me, as soon as I get one of them to start walking towards me, I start jogging back towards the pen. And as soon as they see a goat running, it doesn't matter what is going on, they're lifting up their head and they see that goat running, they're following. They don't know why everyone else is running, but if someone's running, I'm running too. And they'll just run right into the pen with you. So that's that's one of the nice things about having you know, extra animals is, you know, having about six of them is, is a nice number. Cool, man. So, um, if you were going to give people one final bit of advice on this as to making this decision for themselves, what would you say? Um, think long and hard about it. Do some research. Um, and, and definitely find someone in your local area that has goats and, and talk to them. Um, it's it's going to be really handy to have someone who's kind of a mentor who's who's got some years in the game. I would also say that I've I've heard people say, well, you can keep them on less land and what have you if you keep them confined and all. I I try not to be like overly peta like with with you know animal care and not try to anamorphize, but there's certain animals that just don't lend themselves to confinement very well. Uh, mm-hmm. I think all animals are happier when they have some level of freedom. But, you know, my cat, I don't let her outside because she's stupid, blind, half deaf, and it'll kill herself. But mm-hmm. she's a pretty big house. Somewhere. But goats seem to me to be like this animal that doesn't really make sense for that. That's not what's going to keep them happy. And an unhappy animal doesn't usually produce a good quality product. Um, comparing them to, like, let's say, pigs. I would prefer a pig to be pastured, but I've seen pigs in... Not the kind of factory confinement thing, but you know, with a, a pigsty and they have fresh stuff every day and all, and the pig seems relatively like happy. Or chickens I've seen managed that way and they seem relatively happy, you know, a tractor or something. Compared to a duck, I'm like, I had a guy recently came over here and said, you know, I was thinking about, I have this little chicken coop and it was for four birds and has a little tractor area and I'm gonna move it around every day and I'm like, I just, wouldn't advise you to do ducks, man, because they're a different creature socially and psychologically. And that would—I don't know goats, but that's how I seem to feel about goats. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, um, that definitely. Give them a little bit of room to to stretch their legs. They love running. Um, they love to play. You know, people talk about them eating tin cans and stuff. Goats will uh, come up to you and act like they're eating your clothes. Yeah. They're not eating your clothes. They're yanking on your clothes to get you to scratch them. Get your um, attention. They'll, yeah, they'll get your attention. They they nibble on stuff um, to find out what it is, to mm. taste it. Um, it's not because they want to eat it. It's often because they want to taste it. They don't have thumbs in opposable digits, right? they got to use right. something. Yeah. So I've got, I got five little tips and tricks um, uh, as we close out here, man. Cool. Um, Dr. William Albrecht once said, 
observe nature and study books. If they do not agree, throw away the books. <laughs> um, give your goats some rocks or rough concrete piles to play on. Um, you know, you can get free chunks of concrete from construction areas um, where they're ripping stuff up. It really helps with the hoof wear and reduces the amount of hoof trimming. Um, you really don't want to have to trim a billy goat's hooves. So give them a bunch of stuff to uh, to wear their hooves down. Always be patient and be sweet with your goats. It, it takes a lot of patience. It'll really do a lot to make you a more patient person uh, if you have goats. Um, scratch and brush your does when they're ready to milk. It relaxes them and helps them let their milk down. Um, and keep your fences working. Always check your fences. That's very, all I got. Very cool, man. No, it's a great, uh, great conclusion there. Real quick for people that maybe you're new to the show, uh, that don't know about you, tell them how they can learn about more about what you do and, uh, what you're available for. Because even though you, I'm sure you do sell goats, you don't sell that many of them that often, uh, but there's a lot of other things that you do. Right. Um, I, well, I'm a permaculture consultant. I do consulting all over the U.S. Um, and I, I teach permaculture. I, I teach often at, at Jack's and all over the U.S., actually. Um, so you can go to permacultureclassroom.com to find out more about me and to, uh, to contact me. Just email me at permacultureclassroom at gmail.com and let me know if you need any uh, permaculture consulting or, or help assessing a property before you buy it. Cool, man. And I'll, I'll throw my little uh, pitch in here for you as a consultant because this is my most valuable thing about you as far as a consultant that I think. I know for a fact you've told people that say, I want to do X. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you, you think you do, but no, you don't want to do that because you know, you'll know you assess the client and say, okay, you're not going to spend enough time to deal with this or oh, I want to pl- plant locusts for a support species. Uh, how often do you want to work on this? Oh, a couple times a year. No, you don't. Right? Mm-hmm. You'll tell people when just because they've attached themselves to an idea, the idea really doesn't fit their lifestyle, their goals, their agenda, rather than just giving them what they want. Now, if the person holds their breath and says, I damn well want this, okay, but you'll at least give them alternatives. And the other thing I really like about what you do is you're really big on trying to say, let's look at this and not spend a fortune on it. Can we figure out a way to do this more cost-effectively? And I think that's a big part of how a consultant earns his money because a person will look at a day rate of a consultant and go, oh, my God, well, what are 10 mistakes this year going to cost you? Mm-hmm. Hell of a lot more than a day of consulting that says, don't do this, don't do that. Every time I think a good consultant says, no, you don't, um, they probably just earn their fee times two for that. <laughs> because seriously, because it's all, it's never not doing something that usually ends up getting a person in trouble. It's being sure that this is what I should do. And then you do it and you didn't really want to do that. Or you did something and what would get you in trouble as far as not doing it is, well, you did this, but you didn't know if you're going to do this. You should have done these four <clears> other <throat> things. And because you didn't know that, you made a decision to do it rather than either do it right or say, I'm going to do something different for now. And I think that's one of the best things a consultant can help a person do is get through that and keep costs down and prioritize the order of things. Like, let's work on making sure you get some kind of a yield first and then we can blow this thing up. Right, right. I, I, I'm confident that every single one of my, my clients, um, I've, I've saved them tens of thousands of dollars over the, the course of what they were planning on doing, getting things out of order, um, just flat out 
trying to put a pond in a spot that's going to make their lives a living hell kind of thing, you know. Um, you know, if you build a hoogle mound in the wrong place, you can shove it down with a front-end loader and move it. But if you put a pond in the wrong place, yeah, that's a type 1 error. You're living with it. Yep, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. I agree. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us on the air today. And, uh, folks, make sure you get on over to permacultureclassroom.com learn more about what Nick's doing. And, and thanks for hanging out with us today, Nick. Thanks, Jack. Always a pleasure. All right, folks, with that, it's been Jack Spearco today along with Nick Ferguson helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough or even if they don't. Shine is you.